The Village Square, a nervy bunch of liberals and conservatives who believe that disagreement and dialogue make for a good conversation, a good country, and a good time. At The Village Square, we believe big things can happen when ideas collide inside the bonds of mutual respect. We're building the town hall of the 21st century across the partisan divide. At the Village Square, we talk about politics, religion, and race. You know, the topics your mom taught you never to discuss in polite company. When most separate, we gather across color, creed, and ideology. Listen, at the Village Square, we make pigs fly. Welcome to the Village Squarecast. This is your host, Vanessa Rouse. Thank you for joining us today for this very first episode where you get to meet the Village Square or become reacquainted for our regulars out there. We are so excited to connect with you in our first ever podcast episode titled The Podcast Your Mother Warned You About. In this episode, you'll learn why we say that, and you'll also learn all about the Village Square, who they are and how they began, what they do, and how they benefit our community. We're kicking off the Village Square cast just as things started for the Village Square 14 years ago with Liz Joyner, founder and CEO of the Village Square. Liz will tell you about the 30-plus programs they offer each year, where they bring together diverse groups of people for dialogue and disagreement on various topics related to politics, religion, and race. You may have heard about the programs the Village Square produces in Tallahassee, Florida. They have Dinner at the Square, God Squad, and Local Color, plus other events like Created Equal and The Longest Table, which are produced with several community partners. Liz will tell you all about these programs and she'll share our plans for this podcast and much more on this episode. For all our regulars out there, thanks for joining us in this new forum. We miss you and we can't wait to gather again in person. For now, we welcome all listeners to connect with us on the Village Squarecast. Episode two is coming out really soon and it's a local color episode where we hear thoughts from community members on race in America and on the tragic death of George Floyd and other recent events. We welcome you to subscribe to the Village Squarecast in your favorite podcast app or from our website at villagesquare.us so you'll see this episode and others when they come out. All right, let's chat with Liz. Hello, Liz Joyner. How are you? I'm good, Vanessa. How about you? Great. So glad to be here with you. Me too. To start off with, I'd love for you to just share with listeners a little bit about you and how you got here. I know that you started the Village Square 14 years ago, and you're the CEO. And uh, it's such a fantastic gift to this community that you've stayed there and continued to do this hard and important work. And so can you start by just telling us a little bit about who you are and how you got to Tallahassee and to this point where you started this local nonprofit here. So at the Village Square, we build bridges across division. And uh, that's really important, I think, to frame first to sort of tell my story about how I got here. I really have been involved in politics, I would say, kind of as a volunteer uh, for a long time. And increasingly, I was noticing that the, the public square just seemed broken. 
that the way that we were relating to each other around the complex issues of democracy wasn't healthy anymore. It wasn't gathering people who actually disagreed with each other, and it wasn't resulting in in being able to work our way through problems. And so I was increasingly worried about about that problem. I, by the way, I grew up in Washington, D.C., which is a really interesting, you know, it, there's something about it that makes, that makes you, you're just, you feel like you're part of what matters. You're part, you're part of what, what you have to do in a democracy that, that people have to put their shoulder to the wheel and be a part of it. And so I think just growing up there, I just kind of naturally felt that way. So, so I think that those, the confluence of those two things, my, my worry, and then also my history and background. Um, and, and frankly, my, my reverence and respect for this amazing American ideal that we hold. That is, that is, I think, the best idea in all of history that we hold these truths to be self-evident. And we have almost 250 years of working on that. And at the time, those ideas were not at all self-evident. They had never existed in human history before. And those ideas are about how a diverse people can self-govern. And and it's not easy. And and we know that we know that. But it is the best idea that has ever existed. And in the duration of my life and for 250 years, we've been working to get there. And so it is, it's that ideal, that history, my increasing concern that the way that we were relating to each other in the public square was not getting there. And then I had the opportunity to spend some time with some local leaders who were really doing it quite differently. And, you know, I, I actually think that says something about our community in Tallahassee. I think that we're, we're more of a two degree of separation town. And, and I think that makes us really poised to be able to address some of the challenges that we have right now. And the, I, I got an opportunity essentially to hang out with Commissioner Alan Katz during, I was helping him with the re-election campaign, which I had never done before and I won't ever do again. I, I like uh, building the bridges more. But, but he had a group of friends around him uh, who disagreed vehemently politically. Um, vehemently on policy prescriptions, really didn't see things the same way. But they had this wonderful relationship where they engaged around their differences. They engaged with enthusiasm and honesty and, and humor, frankly, sometimes. And their relationship was the most critical part of, of those conversations. And because they put their relationship first, they were able to have the conversations that, that needed to happen. So it, that was during the coal plant debate. If um, listeners remember that, uh, I, you know, I want to say that was about 15, 16 years ago. And this group of friends really disagreed completely on the coal plant. And as I watched the public conversations happen on the coal plant, which really, they kind of almost didn't happen, right? Because because I really do believe that in some ways our, our public square, not just here, but everywhere, is, is kind of broken. But contrasting it with the conversation that Alan and his friends were having, uh, it was just completely obvious that that's the conversation we should be having, where we have respectful disagreements. And then then truth comes out of that. And the best ideas come out of that. And in so many ways, what I think I saw with that friend group 
was the most essential idea that came with the Enlightenment and the, you know, the framers idea of what you do in a democracy, which is you disagree, you know, steel sharpens steel, you disagree with the people who are co-creators of the democracy. And, and out of that comes our ability to self-govern. We don't need a king if we can somehow manage our disagreements in the public square. We check excesses in the majority if we're always having that conversation. And that's the way that you maintain freedom and that you maintain democratic self-governance. So that really is the genesis of Village Square. So we started asking ourselves, you know, I, I kind of shared my thought, hey, this is what it looks like when it's healthy. What if this weren't just five people, but it were 10? And then if it were, could be 10, what if it were, you know, 100? And we, in fact, built the Village Square exactly like that. And we've made it through now for, you know, 14 years. Yes. Look at what you've accomplished in that time. Every time I've engaged with you guys by sitting at an event or reading something on your website, I'm just so encouraged by exactly what you're talking about. And I think that it's easy for us to forget or really not think about uh, where we came from, what this country was built on and what that means and how that plays out today. And I just really have been inspired by digging in more with you guys and and remembering, being reminded of the process that our founders set up. And I feel like right now we have some very, very challenging problems to solve. We do. And this is, to me, what you guys are doing, the conversations that you're facilitating. This is what we need to be talking about. And it's how we need to be trying to solve some of these problems. So I'm just thankful to you, to the organization, to the founders, to all the work that you have done for helping to make those relationships and connections so that then you can solve challenging problems. Um, well, you know, and it's interesting, too. I think that one of the things that we forget about sort of the endeavor of democracy is just how hard it is and just how fragile it is. And I think sometimes here in America, we take it for granted. We just think that this is something that's easy to do. It is impossible to do. It is, it is messy. It is difficult. And I think that we forget that. And, and I think then it's sort of easy to walk away from the, the institutions and the, the space where we make that connection um, with people who don't agree with us. And I guess the other thing I want to say, it's just sort of about the history of it, is that I think that our framers were really superb students of human nature. And, you know, I, I think it was sort of the sea that they swam in then, that, that with, along with the Enlightenment, is that you know, just these ideas about how do you do all these things? They, you know, their ideas pop back and forth between each other, and they had profound disagreements. But I think that what they gave us is is foundationally a truly brilliant structure of how diverse people self-govern and taking into account human nature and the parts of human nature that really make that quite complex. And they bequeath this to us. It is now our job to keep it alive and well. And I can get frustrated sometimes when we talk about the history of the founding of our country that we kind of do an either or thing. Their brilliance in establishing our country and the best ideas to allow us diverse people to self-govern can exist at the same time as the heinous sin of slavery. And both happened. 
And so I think embracing the real story, the real history, what was brilliant and genius about it and what was shameful about it is our path forward. I had scribbled down a quote from a book by Sam Huntington, American Politics, The Promise of Disharmony. He wrote, critics say America is a lie because its reality falls so short of its ideals. They're wrong. America is not a lie. It's a disappointment. But it can be a disappointment only because it is also a hope. Yes, yes. I love that. I think that's excellent, excellent point. And then I think you put it really, really well that these two things, it's, it's not an either or, and it wasn't perfect, and it's not now. But if we hold on to the part that we truly believe in and keep trying to make that happen, that's our job now. And so let's talk a little bit about how you practically do this. How do you bring people together to talk about difficult issues and help solve problems? Um, so I would say that if we had a foundational principle, it's that we do what we do around relationships, not around information. We don't have an information problem in the country. We have plenty of information, right? <laughs> we, we have a relationship problem. We don't have the relationships in this democracy anymore where we kind of muddle through you know, whether information is good or not together, um, whether ideas are good or not together. So it's, it's foundationally a, a relationship problem. So what is different about the village square is that everything that we do is it, always we're thinking the relationships that come first. It's funny because I, when I describe this to, you know, sort of historically and tell our story, I, what I say is that we had, we didn't know that that's what we thought. <laughs> <laughs> at the time, and sort of we caught lightning in a jar accidentally. And it was that that thing that I just described that let us do that, right? Is that we saw relationships that existed in the real world that had that capacity to withstand disagreement. And, and we grew it based on relationships, people to people, human to human. And that is what we suddenly realized when we look back on it, wait a minute, that's, that's it. That is the key. And in fact, I think that if there were, there's one thing that so many effort, there's so many wonderful efforts out there to build bridges. And it is actually a wonderful thing about we Americans is we really do take up our end of the responsibility pretty naturally. And so there are wonderful people out there working on this. I think it's really easy to think that what we need to navigate is policy differences and differences in information and differences in what we think are true, which is, of course, absolutely true as well. We do need to navigate that. But what we first have to do is, is see each other and hear each other and know each other. And, and what the amazing thing is that we, that we found out, again, in retrospect, just because we accidentally did the right thing, is that there's all sorts of data that says that that's how, that's how you fix this. And I'm not meaning to minimize the problems and the differences because the differences are real and the problems are big. But what a psychologist uh, will tell us is that the, the simple act of being in the presence of each other, of other humans, foundationally changes everything. And it's actually easier to do than what it seems. People can make really profound shifts with each other quickly. And it changes your capacity to disagree. And so a couple of sort of concrete examples of that and how, how we do what we do, which may not be evident even to people who come to all of our events. 
is that let's say when we we decide we're going to talk about a topic um, for a program, uh, I'll use the example of immigration. And actually, we had a, a forum on immigration right in the middle of a pretty significant national dust up on immigration, where our Senator Marco Rubio had made some recommendations about immigration reform, and they weren't being accepted on the right side of the aisle. And that was when I think that was kind of the beginning of the Tea Party, beginning ish of the Tea Party. And so there were these town halls that were being disrupted, and it was very angry and difficult. And I think there was even, you know, a little bit of violence. So it was right in the middle of that, we were doing the program on immigration. And I think it would be sort of a natural thing to think is, okay, we need to get people who are on opposite sides of this deep dispute, you know, person A, who stands for this person B, who stands for that. And, and we build panels really differently than that. We, we sort of start with who we know we want on the panel. And then we start thinking about relationships. So we want to build a panel that has some relational glue so that they can disagree deeply and, and continue to have the conversation and with respect and inside of relationships. And frankly, where there isn't a relational glue to begin with, we are very intent on building it. So if, if you've been to a dinner program at the Village Square, you should know that heading into that program, we've had conversation after conversation with this group of people. An example of how we build panels relationally is that immigration program. So we knew that uh, Rabbi Jack Romberg, who was on our board, wanted to be the facilitator for the program. So that was our human number one. And Jacqueline's liberal on immigration. And so we knew we had to find somebody who leaned conservative on immigration, but that who Jack had a relationship with in some way, or, or they would like each other, or they would have something in common. And we, we actually struggled on that one. And it was right. We were worried because we were worried that our forum, it's really bad to be the village square and host a forum that then gets in the newspaper of, you know, <laughs> anger breaks out at village square forum. So, um, we wanted to make sure it was a great conversation. And, uh, we ended up inviting, uh, attorney Len Collins, who uh, lives back in town, had just moved back in town, but he was Marco Rubio's general counsel and, um, and generally had a conservative view on immigration. Well, the reason we invited Len was that he is in a fantasy baseball league with uh, Rabbi Romberg. And so if anybody uh, knows people who do fantasy baseball, you know that those are bonds that cannot be broken <laughs> unless it's, it's over some trade that they made. And so we knew that when we had that relationship and, and a really a, a deep difference of opinion in how you would handle immigration between those two gentlemen, we knew that the, the panel would be able to, would get there. We, we were very confident that there was nothing that you could do to make this go south. And so, so that really is the, the key to everything we do is we always think relationally. We stretch, we try to get the biggest difference we can get inside of some relationship that can withstand the difference. Excellent. Excellent. So that would be what you described with those two people. That would be an example of how you use cross-cutting relationships is something that I've heard <laughs> from you. Um, yes. And to build something that is going to be productive in what you're trying to accomplish. So can you tell us what is cross-cutting relationships and why are they important? 
Um, so actually, the, the maybe the first example of cross-cutting relationships being used to create peace was when European monarchs would marry off their daughter to the son of a, a, a semi-feuding country to essentially create peace. So while these, while these countries may be on the brink of war, uh, they would really strategize about the sort of the best marriage to allow for peace to exist. And so you weren't now just feuding countries, um, you were in-laws. <laughs> so that's an example of a cross-cutting relationship. A married couple who disagrees on politics, a cross-cutting relationship. Parents who drive carpools together for the softball team, those are cross-cutting relationships. I know you in this one way where we're on the same side. And I know you in this other way where we're on opposite sides. And so those, re those relationships are stronger and withstand difference better. And a healthy civil society includes vast numbers of cross-cutting relationships because it makes it so, it's just so much harder to hate the person that you, you know, that you make the school yearbook with, right? When you find out that, that they voted for the presidential candidate that you so deeply oppose, you have to sort of allow more complexity in in the structure of how you see things. What happens in the absence of cross-cutting relationships is what we see now, is if we're always on the same side with the same people on everything, then you've got a division that cannot be crossed. Then you've got them and us and you have enemies. And what's so amazing to see is that and, and I, I think we see this now in the devolution of our civil discourse is that we actually form our tribes first <laughs> and then we decide what we think, right? Is, is we'll actually flip completely on the ideals and the principles by virtue of who we're on the side of. And so that's when we, we're really in great peril because we can't see the humanity in that other person through that cross-cutting relationship. We, we can't see them as, as fully human and just differing in opinion. We, we, we see them as the enemy. And that, and, you know, in some ways, that's kind of a, a default human setting too. It's human nature. We, we've evolved to, to be, you know, tribal. That isn't a bad thing. It's what, in some ways, it's those groupish groups of people who have, we've built civilization with people who see things our way, right? And who are more like us. We, we get things done that way. Um, Robert Putnam, the sociologist at Harvard, calls that bonding social capital. Uh, but there also has to be bridging social capital where you're outside of your normal, your normal space. And, and that sort of getting back around to what we share in terms of how local is so important. Cross-cutting relationships are why local is where this problem is solved, because that's where you can have cross-cutting relationships. You really aren't going to have cross-cutting relationships digitally. It doesn't work very well that way, as we demonstrate on every single Facebook post ever made almost, right? Or maybe Twitter's a better example, because the conversation devolves so deeply because it, it goes them and us right away. But if you think you're, you're talking to the parent of your kid's best friend... <laughs> 
<laughs> you know they're human and, and you see it differently. So that's why it is in hometowns and, and it's never going to work any other way. It, and I think a lot of hometowns feel kind of helpless and hopeless right now because they just think, how, how can you deal with this sort of top-down ick coming at us? And it's dividing us locally along national issues that actually have nothing to do with our hometown in so many ways. And it feels hopeless. And I would argue that the power always has been in local communities. It's always been bottom up and the communities need to take the power back and say, no, I'm not going to let you demonize and vilify Joe, who I may not know, but he lives on the block next to me. And if my dog gets out, <laughs> he might help me find them, you know? And and so we're not going to let you do that because we're neighbors here. And then to venture out and to have those relationships across division that change everything. And they change it magnificently and profoundly. And I mean, what's so amazing to me that I've seen is that, is that I would argue that our, our divisions are as deep as they are because we're not spending as much time together. And it's easy to think we don't spend time with each other because the divisions are deep, right? I, I think it's the opposite. I think if we started really intentionally spending more time human to human, we, we see these amazing shifts that happen quickly when you do that. Absolutely. Oh, so much of what you are saying is just causing me to think of all sorts of examples of uh, of how that all really does come true. And one thing I just thought of was about how, you know, when something has come up and some situation you don't like, and the number of times I've sat there and written the angry email that I then <laughs> later erase, and thank goodness for that, I've, I've kind of realized that that's kind of part of my process, maybe get some get some <laughs> thoughts out by myself, and then take a different action. But my, the my mom calls that her mad letter. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> <a> family name. <laughs> it has a purpose, but usually we don't need to send the mad letter. What I've found is like if you walk into the person's office or sometimes you pick up the phone to call them or whatever and you create more of the more of the debate or the conversation. It's a conversation. You're learning about the person and their perspective and their reason along the way before you put out, you know, a whole a whole book on why they were wrong. <laughs> That's um, right. <laughs> and so just recognizing, you know, we've got to we've got to do this work in person. We have to find areas that we connect. We have to give respect to the other party and, you know, give them the benefit of the doubt that they have, they have something that they're trying to bring here. We might be missing each other at first and in a lot of ways, but if we really take the time to, to learn and to grow, and I think you're exactly right that when we can find something that we appreciate or something that we relate on, or we just know the person and we are going to give them the benefit of the doubt, like we've got to have that yeah, I, that is so, so accurate and so profound. And in some ways, if you think about our digital life now and our civic life, I mean, the way, how are we engaged in the ongoing conversation of American democracy, mostly digitally and mostly in the way that you would describe as writing a whole book about how you suck, <laughs> right? right. Um, and with, without any interaction with the other person, without any clarification, and frankly, without any human to human moments where you are eye to eye 
And, you know, another part of human nature that is profound, I think, and it's amazing, and and we, we don't tap it often enough, is reciprocity, is we humans are incredibly reciprocal in that we will engage in acts of kindness that are deep and real from the smallest acts of kindness that are done to us, right? I think those those reverberations of reciprocity happen all the time if we make ourselves present face to face. And in fact, you're I think you're even seeing it now in that we're recording this during the protests after the tragic death of George Floyd. And I think you're even seeing it in some of the protests, the police officers and the protesters. I'm seeing people talking. I'm seeing people hugging, people kneeling. Those are the moments of reciprocity that happen when you're face to face. They don't happen digitally. Let's talk a little bit about how you make your magic happen. And so we'll get to your programs and have you kind of describe each program in just a minute. But there are some things that are fundamental. And so you always meet in person. Except when you can't, because it's illegal. (laughs) Right, (laughs) right. You're having a global pandemic. Exactly. A little wrinkle, but you're figuring out how to adjust as everyone is. So you meet in person, you meet over a meal, and you make sure that you collect a diverse group of opinions or of people. So are those the the basics of what each event needs in order to uh, be a Village Square event? Yes, those are the most profound basics. When we open our programs, we introduce people to what we call the civility bell. It's one of those little librarian bells. We have two of them. And uh, we put them in the hands of one liberal and one conservative. And actually, we charge them with the idea of kind of paying the most attention to policing their own side of the aisle. So, which, which again, by the way, is one of the secrets to success in civic engagement is if we did more of that, we'd be in much better shape. If we just sort of said, hey, you know, friend who agrees with me on this, if you could say it a little differently, it maybe we'd do better. So we have the civility bell out in the audience and it's rarely used. It's almost a carrot and a stick kind of thing, right? We sort of know, you know, yeah, we don't want really, nobody really wants the civility bell rung on them. And actually I've had it rung on me before when somebody thought I talked too long and we all laughed about it. It was That's funny. Gosh, Liz. And then the other thing that we do is we caution the audience against what we call team clapping. It's amazing how uh, pay attention to an event that you go to when there is a there's, you know, sort of difference of opinion that exists. We, we tribal up in just how we clap. And, you know, you'll, in a normal audience, you know, somebody will say something that isn't a popular opinion and you'll hear, ooh, or this little grumble. And then you'll hear people clap or snap when they agree. And so we ask people to sit on their hands, to hold their opinion lightly for the duration of the program. And what we find is that even that small act keeps us more open to the other. When we build panels, we are very focused on bringing a person from each side who makes the best argument and the one that is most hearable by people who don't agree with them. And so we're not looking for people who make their day job at advocating necessarily for, for or against something. We're looking for people who who can be convincing to someone who doesn't already agree with them and who makes the argument well and who is who is likable. Our goal is not that you come out of a Village Square event agreeing or disagreeing, having one opinion or the other. 
Rather, it's that you leave liking that person that you wouldn't have expected to like a little bit and thinking that maybe they made a point. Right. That is so important. So let's talk, Liz, about your programs. You have multiple programs that you guys provide. And so let's talk about each one. Tell me about Dinner at the Square. So Dinner at the Square is our founding program, the one that we've now done for 13, almost 14 years. And honestly, I think that we thought at the beginning, well, we'll just throw our doors wide open. We'll have a dinner. We'll do it around food. Again, the really, it's really critical. It's that human to human breaking bread together thing. We'll make it easy for people to come. You know, we do about 25 or 30 programs a year at the village square. Three of them are dinners and those are the only ones we charge for, but we also offer scholarship tickets. So we make it very easy. If, if it's financially difficult for you, then you just need to let us know and we'll get you in. And so our idea at the beginning was we were going to throw the doors open to everyone, make it really easy to come in and that we were going to get a diverse group of people and that that was going to be it. And so we still have the dinner series. It's really important part of what we do. But one of the things that we found is that our our society has just grown so siloed that we weren't getting the cross-section of people that we wanted to see at that particular event. The audience leaned white, it leaned liberal, and it leaned older. And so actually the first topic that we did the first year was uh, America's energy future. And we ended the year because we started around the coal plant debate. We ended the year with the two most public opponents of the coal plant and the two most public proponents of the coal plant on a panel together. And they actually let me Photoshop their images onto a lineup. And we called it the usual coal suspects. And that was our poster that we put out. So that's great. So I, I hope then people thought, hey, this might be a little different. But after that first year, when we weren't quite getting the diversity of opinion and demographic diversity in that we wanted, we decided to just go, well, okay, we're going to do a totally different topic. So maybe liberals were more concerned about energy and sustainability and topics like that. So the next, the second year we did faith, politics, and neighbors was our theme. And, you know, all the dinners we have for the whole year are around that central theme. So it's a little bit like a season at the theater. It's, you know, it's it's sort of a, a series. And so faith, politics, and neighbors, our little tagline was a quote by Richard Niebuhr, I think, and it's ground well trodden by angels and fools. And so we were hoping we would draw more conservatives into the conversation by creating a place in the public square that they could bring their faith. And again, a kind of a rich public square that includes everybody. And I do think that conservatives sometimes feel that they have to leave their faith at the door of the public square. And I think that's really important that we that we not make that so. So we threw the doors wide open and I do think we got more conservatives, but I, th- I think we were still unhappy that we still weren't reaching as widely as we wanted to. So that is the genesis of our second series of programs that we now just celebrated our 10th year of doing God Squad. And God Squad started, and this this is a very Tallahassee story, so I have to tell it. God Squad uh, started one morning at Uptown Cafe where I was having a meeting and uh, Rabbi Jack Romberg and Father Dave Colleen of St. John's Episcopal Church were having a meeting and they were talking about doing something kind of like this. And we were talking about doing something kind of like this and we saw each other face to face, human to human. 
Yeah. And the conversation started then. And so then we gathered a very politically diverse group of pastors in the community to start God Squad. And we um, nurtured those relationships and we were off. And God Squad meets probably six or seven times programs a year that we do. And the relationships between those people on the God Squad, I, there is nothing like it, honestly. I I feel like we just need to put them in charge of everything <laughs> and, and, and they'll be able to muddle their way through. They still disagree vehemently on so many things and such incredible things come out of that disagreement. It's really you, transcendent things ha- happen when you kind of, when you disagree and you find each other again, and you can maintain that, that disagreement and those different views and those different experiences and keep talking and keep that relationship alive. And so I have gotten so much inspiration from those conversations. And, and I think the community has as well. And, you know, it's interesting too, that we've got a pretty large number of uh, humanists, atheists who are regular attenders at the God Squad series. We've made friends. There are these wonderful friendships across complete differences in view on that, that has sustained for, for many years now. Absolutely. It's such a special program. And and I've been but not often enough. And so I feel like this is the moment where we should tell people that they're going to be able to experience some of this old content as well. If you're listening to this, and you're like, wow, that sounds amazing. Why wasn't I there? Well, you'll have the opportunity. <laughs> yeah. So as part of this podcast, we're going to be airing some old throwback content. And uh, we'll pick out some of those, you know, not to miss events that are in the past, but you can still experience. So I'm really I'm I'm glad for that personally, because I really wish that I was there all along. Yeah, we're, we're really excited about this, because we have kept audio of programs for all these years. And um, we've had them up online, and, and anybody can access them there. But it's really different than when podcasts came along, we uh, were really excited about the idea of, of doing a podcast. And really, it's it's taken us meeting you before we really just decided to do it. And also a global pandemic that added to the uh, imperative just a little bit as well. Yes, well, that's great. Um, so yes, God Squad sounds really important, really impactful. And so tell us about Local Color, another program that you've added on. So the genesis of Local Color was conversations in our community that started after the tragic death of Trayvon Martin. And, you know, the village square existed and was really a part of the community, living, breathing part of the community at that point in time. But we started talking to local leaders about, well, okay, how do you have a gathering when a crisis like this occurs? And how do you make it constructive? So when we talked about how to talk about the tragedy, one of the things we realized is that depending on who hosts the program, depending on the location of the program, you were going to get either a predominantly black or a predominantly white audience. And I think in in a lot of ways, it was kind of a come to Jesus moment for us where we went, wait, we can't wait for a tragedy to make this not true. We Mm -hmm. have to, we have to build a muscle in this community where we are used to gathering across racial differences, 
political differences, but also racial differences. And so that's when we kind of expanded our mission to gathering across ideology, to gathering across color, creed, and ideology. And and we felt like it had to be an intentional thing or else it wasn't going to happen. And, and I don't think there's any ill will that existed there. It's just, it's another manifestation of our silos, right? We host a lot of programs at St. John's downtown because it's such a central location and they have a wonderful big space. But we've also had events at Bethel AME. We've had events. We've gone all over town. We have a regular event called Created Equal with Leon County Government at the Moon. So we go all over. And one of the things we found is that your location is going to dictate your audience. So that's when we finally realized that those relationships didn't exist the way they ought to in the real world. And we were going to have to make them happen. Actually, Longest Table, if people have attended that, is another event that came out of a collaboration with then-commissioner, but then later Mayor Andrew Gillen, the city of Tallahassee, Leon County government, and these conversations created the Longest Table. But then Knight Foundation came to us and they you know, asked the question, what would you do given this tragedy? So, I mean, lots of things came out of all our cumulative horror at watching what happened all those years ago. And so we started thinking, what do we do? What do we do? How do we do it? How do we make it something different than what has existed before? Because because what has existed before hasn't worked. And and this is hard, right? And it's difficult and it hurts our hearts and it's, it's a hard space to walk into. So we wanted this to represent something that felt different. In some ways, when we were, I was sort of conceptualizing it, it was, I was going to say when, when the Broadway play Hamilton was popular, but it's still, you know, it's, Mm -hmm. but it was when it was sort of rising and we were kind of going, that's what we want to create a space that embraces the highest ideals of American democracy for a new generation of people and for the diversity of people that ought to have been there to begin with and need to be there now. And so Hamilton was sort of a visual representation of that, which is that we can embrace these ideals, give them the faces that they ought to be, execute them with the wonderful, glorious diversity of our country, and then do it in a way that's not dull, because that's one of our other, I guess, founding ideals of the Village Square is you can't make it dull. People aren't going to show up. I mean, they're just not. So this has to be something that you want to be at. I have in my presentation a a slide that has a head of broccoli on it and it says, eat your broccoli civics is dead. And I do believe that to be true. So that is all the genesis of local color. So we focused it really intently on drawing a younger audience back into the civic space in a way that feels like what you want to do that evening, right? That that feels like this is this is my life and this is who I want to hang with. And we're very focused on making sure that it's deeply welcoming to people of color. And to be honest, one of the things we've had to do to make that a reality, and it is a reality with local color, our audience is, I'd guess, 30, 35% people of color, more or less, but really solid diversity. And that is that we actually, we keep it kind of a program on the down low, that we've spread the word sort of organically through partnerships and solid relationships we have in the community. And we gather and we have hard conversations. And in fact, we're talking right now about how we gather at a time when we can't gather physically. And we've been we've been gathering electronically and we'll continue to do so. 
So we talked about some of the basics of how we do what we do at the Village Square, and I talked about some of the dinner rules and event rules with local color. We thought we needed to do work a little bit harder to make sure the rules were really good ones. And believe it or not, we actually run through these rules at the beginning of each of our programs. And our wonderful facilitators, Brad Johnson and Jovita Woodrich, often do it with humor because it is just such a long list. So I won't be funny enough for this, but these are important. So this is, we share at the beginning of our program at Local Color. Our goal isn't to agree, it's to disagree and still keep talking. We ask people to assume good intention by others and remind them that use of the wrong words is allowed and that imperfection does not make you a racist. We ask people to not come to offend and to temporarily overlook offense. We try to emphasize the fact that disagreement and hate are not the same thing. We ask them to practice humility no matter how wrong someone is and how right you are. There's still something you can learn from them. This is a conversation, not a series of monologues. Extend undeserved favor to each other. I I kind of love that one. Because sometimes we don't really (laughs) deserve to have the benefit of the doubt, but we ask people to give it and we ask them to listen to understand. And then we give a final point of advice. Insulting those you disagree with isn't persuasive and what happens at local color stays at local color. I love that. That's perfect. I mean, I think that's just the perfect set of ground rules to allow people to feel safe and to feel like it's important to say the thing they might be thinking and and kind of scared to say sometimes. Yeah, yeah. that's what we try to do. And then if there's any time left after we read that list, we we talk. That is so important and so wise to add this to your programming. You know, I was just thinking about one of my favorite, you know, phrases about the village square is about how we talk about politics and religion and race, the things your mother told you never to talk about in polite company. <laughs> and I think it's interesting, the the adding on the and race part, because traditionally, I think that phrase is mostly about the politics and religion. And what I think is so fascinating right now is that, you know, I grew up during a time period when we the thinking was kind of, we're all created equal, we're colorblind, we don't see the differences and just treat everybody the same. And that seems to have not worked, because there are differences in our experiences and ignoring those differences, you know, is causing uh, more harm to the overall uh, situation and healing from our very challenging past uh, racially. And so I think it's very interesting and wise that the phrase works so well with, you know, adding race on there. A lot of us grew up not talking about it and it's not helping to not address it. It's not it's not helping and what it does is it it does the same thing that our differences over politics has done lately as it drives it underground. If we're if we're not talking about it and we're not experiencing it and we're not spending time with people who look and think differently than we do, who have different experiences around race and who 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 live a different reality around race if it's not overt and we're not talking about it and it's not a part of our regular conversation of democracy, it goes down under, right? And that's when it gets really, it's really dangerous. You know, um, I, I referenced the uh, like-minded groups before. Al-Qaeda is a an example of how radicalization naturally happens online when like-minded people gather and they radicalize. And obviously, that's an extreme example. There's, I'm not making that comparison to any anything that we have here. But I do think we've been spending more time about 
uh, talking about the radicalization of sort of subgroups inside of our culture. And it's because they can find each other so easily now online. And then you've got that do loop of conversation that is now it's radicalizing, it's growing more extreme in the direction of the majority view. And if you spend too much time in that space, it is it is human nature that that is how it goes. And so while thankfully, I think there are rare spaces even now around race where that level of radicalization has occurred, I do think we need to we need to be very aware that if we don't keep talking to each other, if we don't keep spending time with each other, no matter how uncomfortable it sometimes can be, and no matter how fraught the conversation is with emotion, we're going to drive it underground. And and that is incredibly da- dangerous and damaging. Right. What an interesting time in history too to be talking about all this and to try to figure out how to how to move forward. We're at a boiling point racially. We're also confined to our houses because of coronavirus. And so bad combo. Right, exactly, exactly. Maybe we should talk just for a minute about what the next year you feel like looks like for the village square. Um, I know your season runs generally follows the school year where it starts in the fall and ends right before summer, basically the end of the spring. And so as you look ahead to the next year and all the unknowns that we're experiencing with social distancing, what are your thoughts and, and plans for how to connect during this very important, but also more challenging time? So again, it's been definitely an interesting season of soul searching for us because uh, the pandemic has taken away our basic model for the time being, which is big rooms full of people and interaction. So exposure. And in some ways, I think, you know, in the Chinese character for crisis is also means opportunity. I think there are ways in launching the podcast, an example, there are ways that we really want to be stronger inside this community in the digital space that isn't different than the hometown relationships. It's the same, right? It's the, it's a digitalization of hometown. It's not the national and the distant raining down disagreement and anger the same way. It's the community relationships being able to accelerate digitally and online, and for people who can't be there and want to be a part of it, to further advance those relationships, to deepen them. So I think we're kind of looking at it in a slightly different way now. And while I might have, in all honesty, considered some of the digital spaces kind of more the enemy (laughs) of Mm -hmm. of our, our effort, we're now considering it an amplification of our effort. So we'll be starting throwback content with past programs through the summer. And we'll be doing fresh podcast conversations until it's safe to meet again and well beyond. So we're like really excited that we're going to be doing programs this way and that we're, we're going to keep it up. So we're going to keep it so that it's accessible for everyone in the community, whether they're in person with us or whether they're not. And we think that that's a way to build a stronger, deeper community with stronger civic glue. You know, we're ad- adventuring into other things as well digitally. We'll share the news about what, what exactly we're doing on this very podcast come, you know, when school is back in late August, early September. So good. So good. 
Can you tell us about some of the work that you've been doing to get other communities nationally, but also you've had some international engagement as well. So tell us what's happening there. Well, it's funny because rarely does a week go by that we don't get a phone call from someone sort of saying, hey, we're trying to do this in our community. We're, we're muddling through you know, what you do and how you do it. So really, for a number of years now, we have very informally been, we try to help everyone do what it is they're trying to do better. There's an old BASF ad that was, we don't make the products you buy, we make the products you buy better. <laughs> and so we've sort of been BASF for a lot of startups in a lot of places. And, you know, we've gotten, we got a call from a group in London. Well, actually, our very best story is that we had someone from Australia attend one of our events. She just showed up. <laughs> That's so neat. And actually, I'd gotten an email from her and like many other emails, and she was saying that she was thinking of coming. And I was saying, hmm, I felt some responsibility there. Are you sure? <laughs> Seems like a long way to come. We could talk on the phone. And I never heard back from her because she was determined to come. And she came when we were having an event, the two events back to back, and she came to both events. And she just wanted to see it in person. And we're still friends and we still talk and they've got some efforts where she's from now. And actually, it was her visit that kind of inspired another idea that we have that we're proceeding on now. And we're calling it the Flying Pig Academy. People who haven't attended uh, may not know that our mascot from the very beginning has been the humble flying pig because well, this is a challenging thing we're doing. Yes. We have mugs that have flying pigs on them that we give for gifts as for panelists. And, you know, everything is flying pig. So we're calling it the Flying Pig Academy. And we're hoping that, you know, in the coming year, we will have it set up where people from all over the country and the world, we're, we're inviting people from Australia too, will come to Tallahassee to experience a couple of our events on successive evenings. And then during the day, we'll do, we'll workshop what our model is how we do what we do, how it's a different approach, provide them resources, programming resources, in-the-box programming, consultation, etc., to help accelerate what they're doing. You know, I would be remiss if I didn't also mention that we do have a second Village Square in Florida in partnership with Broward College, and um, they are, I believe, entering their fifth year as a Village Square. And so we, you know, we are definitely open to having other locations, but we also don't want to make that a requirement that, you know, we, we will only work with you if you want to be a village square. We want to help everyone make, make it easier for communities to come back together. And then you know, another national project that we have that, again, locals who know us well may not be aware of is we have a project called Respect and Rebellion. We have been on college campuses across the country for the past three years, offering them pairs of speakers. So like an average college speaker experience is that if you get someone on campus who, you know, is controversial or disagrees, or the groups on campus disagree that they shout them off. So instead, we bring pairs of people who have relationships with each other, despite their disagreements. They're, they're the speakers set. We come in pairs. And so it's much easier to come onto campus with a diverse set of ideas if they're inside of a friendship that exists in the real world. And we've had speaker pairs on campus at Berkeley. We've had speaker pairs on campus at Brigham Young. We intentionally, those were our pilot campuses because we thought those were about as different as campuses can be. And Texas Tech, Duke, Texas A&M, just lots and lots of campuses across the country. And so it's the same model. It's based on relationships. 
and that inside of a solid relationship, you can do the the disagreement of democracy and still come out the other side and grab a beer. Right. It is such important work. And I'm just really impressed with what you guys have built here and how others are noticing that. I mean, it's remarkable. Well, hopefully we have really given people an appetite for more of what you have to offer. And so if we have folks listening that are new to the Village Square, let's just take a second to tell them how they can be more engaged, you know, maybe sign up for the newsletter, subscribe to the podcast. And then of course, once the in-person events are happening again, you know, attend those. So I'd love for you to add anything else that you have. But also it seems like people subscribing to your newsletter would be the best way to find out what's happening. Happening, what's coming, how we're adapting during these unusual times. It is. If folks go to tlh.villagesquare.us and page down to the bottom of the page, they'll find our newsletter signups. They can look for the flying pigs. We are very careful about not over-emailing our list because we want you to hang in there with us. So at most, it's maybe a couple of emails a month at most. And during the summer, we go dark as we plan the next season, although this summer we're going to go digital instead of going dark. And so the newsletter really is, I think, the most important thing. And then just tune in to the stream that you like the best. We've got different audiences for different events. And um, just, you know, check it out. And also, you know, I'd love to give my email address and my phone number even because, again, this is community. So anybody who wants to chat about this idea and how we do what we do and how we might do something more or different or better, they can reach me at Liz at villagesquare.us or 850-264-8785. Doors always open because, hey, we're neighbors. Absolutely. That's that's the fascinating and the the wonderful thing about this is how how open and welcoming it is and just engaging, you know, bringing us to the next deeper level so we can make some progress. So excellent. Well, thank you, Liz, so much for explaining all of this and doing it so well and for all of the work that you do in the community to help us come together, remember who we are, move forward and be better than than we have been. So thank you. Thank you, Vanessa. It's been lots of fun. I also wanted to encourage people before we signed off, if they haven't listened to Let's Get Local Tallahassee, the podcast that you started when? Last October, yeah. Um, that it is it is must listen podcast. It's, you know, about this hometown that we share together and it's spectacular. Thank you so much. It's been a fun project and my favorite unintended consequence is how much I'm learning and the relationships, the people that I'm talking to. You know, I was uh, born and raised here. Uh, I've lived here almost my whole life except for seven years. And I kind of thought, I know this town and I I know what we have to offer and I just want to share it with other people. And it's been so interesting and fun to realize how much I've uncovered that I didn't know about in terms of things to do in terms of nonprofits and businesses that are doing amazing work and just helping our community come together in all sorts of ways. And, you know, every time I get done with an episode, it's my favorite episode. <laughs> That's, <laughs> so, pretty great. That's pretty great. Yeah. And I bet when you started, you might not have really realized that you're actually also saving American democracy while you do it. So yay. Thank you. Thank you. I'm so happy to be working with you guys. And I look forward to all that's to come with the Village Square cast and everything else that the Village Square does. We do too. Thanks, Vanessa. Okay, everybody, that was Liz Joyner. And I got to tell you, I just feel so inspired and hopeful every time I listen to Liz speak. I love her passion for our country and her determination for making pigs fly. 
Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Village Squarecast. If you're intrigued by what you heard today, we hope you'll tell a friend and subscribe to the Village Squarecast from your favorite podcast service or on our website at villagesquare.us. And you can also visit us online to learn all about the Village Square's programs, explore and listen to past programs, sign up for our monthly newsletter, send us a question or a comment, and see the show notes page for this episode. Find all of that and more at villagesquare.us. Please be on the lookout for the local color episode coming out soon and more community discussions to follow that, including throwback episodes of some of our favorite programs. We hope you'll worry your mother by subscribing and becoming a regular listener. Until next time, we challenge you to reach out with an open heart and mind to someone who doesn't look or think like you. It changes everything. We'll talk to you soon, and thank you so much for listening to the Village Squarecast. Cast.